Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are in the world. Welcome to Smart Remarks, Howarth States. I'm Doug Howarth, and with me today is Dr. Christian Smart. Today we're going to talk about, among other things, cryptocurrencies, Monty Hall, and the Lapper Curve. So with me today, Dr. Christian Smart. Christian, how are you today? Uh, doing well. How are you, Doug? Good, thanks. Very, very good. I um I understand from talking to you that, you know, as good as your book is, there was a part that you, you kind of liked a lot that they left out, or at least a couple of parts. Maybe you could start us out by sharing what that would have been in your book that we won't see that maybe is in your, your second book. Yeah, so uh, th- thanks, Doug. Um, yeah, so I try to motivate the discussion with stories. I mean, it does hit on some technical topics, but I try to discuss it in a non-technical way. And so... Um, and uh, my editor uh, liked that for the most part. He calls the style engaging, but uh, there were a few cases where he thought things were a little too far afield and they wanted them cut out. So um, one of those was a discussion about uh, theory versus practice. Uh, the sure. prime minister of uh, Ireland once said, um, well, I can see it works in practice, but does it work in theory? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so, you know, because one of the things I talk about in my book is the divergence between the theory and, and practice. So there's a lot of theoretical constructs, and you pointed some out in economics that don't always work so well in practice, like the supply curve. One of the things I talk about in my book about risk, you know, the subject of my book is risk, is about the um, the way that risk is perceived is not the, the amount of risk that really is out there. So, for example, they one of the constructs that's often – uh, discussed is that when you begin a project, risk is at its maximum. And then as the project, when the project is completed, it's zero. There's no risk. And and there's kind of a, you know, it's kind of slowly, you know, so the, these little notional graphs kind of show the risk kind of slowly decreasing towards zero. The problem is, is that that's not the way that risk is really perceived or assessed in practice. Uh, people actually, when we start projects, they actually uh, risk is actually perceived as being very minimal and only as mm-hmm. the project goes along and, and the development begins and people, and then, and then the project starts encountering problems. Do they either discover that there is risk that they didn't really understand or they really admit to risk that they potentially knew were there all along, but tried to, you know, like an ostrich with his head in the sand, just tried to ignore. So, um, so one of the stories I tell to try to motivate that is the, uh, story of, of the philosophers, Plato and, and Diogenes, uh, the, the, the philosophers, uh, lived, you know, ancient Greek philosophers um, lived a long time ago, uh, like, you know, 300, 400 BC time frame, And they, they were contemporaries of each other and they were uh, both uh, philosophically students of, of Socrates uh, in a sense. Um, Plato being Socrates' closest disciple and, but they, they diverged quite a bit. So Plato was very interested in theory and uh, t- two key ideas I think that really have affected the modern world. One was theory and, with, and that's affected modern academics, which is it's, it's strong focus on theory and to the exclusion sometimes of, of uh, practical applications. Right. And the other one is some, uh, is uh, more of a, almost a religious type idea that, you know, the, the, uh, the body and the spirit are separate and the, the, the spirit is good and the, the body is evil, which has had a strong influence on Christianity. I won't really go over that anymore, but just, you know, I have heard it. I have heard people say that the modern church 
um, ha, is has been more influenced by uh, Plato than Jesus. Yeah. For example. So, uh, but anyway, so I won't belabor that point. But um, but the, the idea between Plato and Diogenes, Plato talked about the theory of forms, and one of the ideas he talked about was uh, was cupness, uh, the idea of cupness, and. Dajnes attended his uh, discussion on that subject, and he said he didn't understand the ideal of, of cupness, and Plato said, you don't have the head for understanding the discussion, and Plato went up and, and tapped uh, Plato on the head, and he said, I think here's the, the emptiness you know, that, that goes in the cup. <laughs> it's up here in the head. So um, so that's uh, kind of you know, the, 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 you know, the, uh, the conflict between theory and practice. Sometimes uh, theory is important, but it, it needs to be grounded in well, what's reality. Yes, yeah. And when you're mentioning the risk and you're talking about birds, it reminded me of a, a project I studied just briefly for a thing we were looking at. There was a dredging operation going on in the Netherlands. They wanted to create more harbor space uh, in a certain port. I think it was Rotterdam. And so they they started digging and they were looking for places to put the dirt, and as they started to put the dirt down, they, they ran afoul, no pun intended, of a bird that was nesting, that the government decided, well, the bird needs to have its nest, and therefore you will not be able to work in this area during the nesting period. And that happened for three or four seasons of a, of a long project, adding on months and months of work to it. So there's lots of unseen risk that you that you don't allow for, and I know who saw that risk at the beginning of the dredging project, right? Absolutely. Oh, right. Yep. Definitely. Yep. Yep. So again, your book's coming out in in November. Uh, I'm currently in the copy editing phase. I just got the initial copy edits, um, responded to some questions, made a few uh, changes. It's looking very good. So then there's a couple more rounds uh, for the book, but it's getting close. Um, and um, so it's uh, we did a I did a webinar for ASEA um, that uh, took place on June 23rd. And if you're interested in viewing that for the price of $25, if you're an ASEA member, which is International Cost Estimating and Analysis Association, or $50 if you're a non-member, you can view the video recording of the video at aseaonline.com/forward/slash. QED, which stands for Quo Errata Demonstratum, which is how um, people used to always end a mathematical proof with. It, you know, mean, it, Latin it means thus it has been demonstrated. So you can you can view you can view that there, um, and uh, so that's that's one place where you can get it. And that's a like a 45 minute, 50 minute summary of the contents of the book. You can also pre pre-order the book on Amazon.com. Um, search for if you search for Smart. And project risk management, you'll uh, be able to, to find it. It's uh, the title is Solving for Project Risk Management: Understanding the Critical Role of Uncertainty in Project Management. Well, very good. I I'm uh, pleased to announce I'm going to have a podcast also at ICEA on the 29th of uh, this month. You can find it at the same site that Kristen uh, Kristen's podcast is, and my my podcast is entitled, or my seminar rather, is entitled a Three Market Ten Dimensional Trade. And in it, I show how we, we take a, three related markets and compare what happens when one market depends on another, which depends on another. And it turns out that we can portray that 
in 10 mathematical dimensions. And that's part of what it is that our company does is it created some ways to view added dimensions. And so this is an extension of that. So more about that later. So you and I had a few topics to talk about this week. And um, we were talking about Monty Hall and let's make a deal last week. And I, I, I find that thing fascinating. I kind of like to return to that if we could for a few minutes because um, that's a fascinating problem, not well understood. And it got into the Bayesian statistics and, and Bayes is more prevalent in fact, my three-dimensional ten, my three-market ten-dimensional trade is is basically uh, a Bayesian thing across three markets. One depends on the other, depends on the other. So, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the um, the three. I'd say the three-card money, but it's really the three-door money problem that we had, right? Yeah, the three. Yeah, money, money hall. Last time we talked about this problem a little bit. Um... And, and talked about the, the solution and it, it confuses a lot of people. It's a little bit counterintuitive. Um, you have, you know, Monty Hall was the host of the game show. Let's make a deal. I think it's still on the air, but Monty Hall is no longer the host. I think he's passed away, but he, um, but used to be the host of the show back in 1970s. Um, and this is kind of an idealized form of a game that he played on his show, which was uh, a contestant is presented with three doors behind one door is a car and behind the other two doors um, is a goat. So there's, there's two goats and one car. And if you, if you choose a, a door at random, then what Monty Hall would do is he would open a door that you did not chose, did not choose and show you a goat and then ask, would you like to switch? And now the probability part of this is, is it in your um, favor? Should you switch doors when he shows you a goat? And, you know, uh, and the answer is it is, it's not intuitive. It's a lot of people think, well, it's a 50, 50 either way, but it's not really true because Monty is never going to open a door that shows you a car. So um, he's only going to open a door that shows you a goat and that gives you additional information. So, uh, but there's two assumptions in that I've, I've seen, uh, if you're familiar with the uh, Quora, the, there's an app and a website called Quora, yeah. Q-U-O-R-A. Mm -hmm. Some people argue about this a little bit in the sense that, well, you've got to assume a couple of things. So there's, there are two key assumptions. One is that Monty knows all the information about the game. He knows uh, which doors have the goats behind them and which door has the car behind it. And he's, he's always uh, benevolent in this sense that he's always going to open a door regardless of what you do. He's not going to um, only open a door if you pick, the door that has a car behind it, for example, you know, he's not, he's not trying to, he's not trying to get you. He's, he's right. trying to help you. So if, if the answer can change, if he doesn't know anything, then him just randomly opening a door and you see a goat doesn't change anything. doesn't improve your odds at all because there's no additional information that you gain because he doesn't have any information for you to gain from him. Uh, if, if he's, and if he's a uh, malignant in the sense that uh, or malevolent, he's trying to get you, then he can try to rig it so that switching the door would actually go against your favor. But these two assumptions, basically um, it's always the case that you should, you should switch. And one of the ways you could see it is if you were to repeat this experiment, let's say you were to do this 90, 90 times, right? So 30 times it would be behind door one, 30 times behind door two and 30 times it'd be behind door three. And then, but if you, you, let's say you pick door one. This is a symmetric problem, so it doesn't matter. So if you pick door one, 
then there's, you know, half of the times there's, um, and, and so then what happens? So there's two stages of this game. You pick a door, one, two, or three. Let's say you pick door number one. And then after that, the next stage is Monty Hall opens, and let's say he picks, he opens door number three, which has a goat behind it. So you play this game 90 times. You, you, you pick door number one every time, but 30 of those times, the car is behind door number one. So there's a 50-50 chance that there's a, a that when he opens door number three, that there's a car or a, a goat behind door number one, because now you know that the car is not behind door number three. But if it's if it's really behind door number two, and he shows you door number three, then um, then you know that the you don't know this, but then it, there's a hundred percent chance that the that the car is behind door number two. So, um, you know, he's not, he's not going to show you that, that door. So it turns out that if you were to do this experiment 90 times, you know, in, in 30 cases, the, the, uh, the, where he shows you door number three in 30 of the cases, the, um, the car is going to be behind door number two and the cases that are relevant to you in terms of getting the car. And in, half of those, the car will be behind door number one. So it's always in your favor to switch. You gain information right. from, from being able to switch. So that's kind of, we talked about this some last time, but just a little bit more. Uh, it's always an interesting problem. Yeah, I, I kind of get at the problem the other way, which is you, you start out that there's uh, three doors. So there's a 100% probability it's behind one of the three doors. If Monty's getting two of the doors, that means his odds are 67% that he's got the right door. And you're getting one door, so your odds 33%. So when Monty opens one of the other doors, your your odds haven't changed. You still got the one of the three door the one of the three doors with which you started, which means that the remaining probability is 67%. It's yeah. Pretty good, so yeah, so that's a good way to think about it too. Yep. Very interesting. So that kind of gets to the whole idea of money, and 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 um, you brought up that you were interested in Bitcoin. Now, I've studied Bitcoin a little bit, and, and some people, I, I know several of my friends, consider cryptocurrencies to be investments. But, you know, to, to date, we, we have people that trade on currency exchanges. And if you, if you study currency as I have, you can figure out that what holds up a currency primarily in the United States, there's, there's two big factors that drive the, the, the value of the currency. One is how much have you printed of it? And then A, or B, then how many, how much foreign reserves do you have to, to, to back that up? And if you take those two things, those two attributes together, you can kind of get a reasonably good estimate of what the currency is worth. Right. So what's, what's interesting to me is that there's no counterpart to foreign currency reserves for any of the cryptocurrencies outside of the ones that are tied to currencies, uh, fiat currency. So I guess I'd be, my first question to you would be, is, is, is Bitcoin only a currency or is it a currency and an investment? And if it's an investment, is it an investment simply because you got in early and you, you got in on the, uh, the low supply or in the, is it an investment five years down the road? You're just coming into it. Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I don't know. I'm still trying to get my wrap my head around uh, digital currencies. You know, um, in the past, um, currencies were backed by some sort of 
you know, paper currencies were backed by something like gold or silver to some extent. And then government switched to fiat currencies where they said this has value because we says it does, because we say it does. You know, in a, in a digital currency, what is what is holding up the value? Is it is it is there something backing it that provides it with value or is it an alternative? Is it some sort of secure form of currency that can't be hacked like, like a bank account can? I guess that's one aspect to it. Does it have value because it is secure? I guess there's some value in, in the security of the currency. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they, of course, have all the cryptocurrencies are, are built on blockchain. So they would argue that there's a digital record and therefore it's, it's secure in that way. But what's fascinating to me, too, and I, I seldom hear proponents of, of cryptocurrencies talk about this particular facet of the currencies, but the currencies that you, you buy have value to, in the, to the extent you can prove you have a record of them. And so what happens to a lot of people is that they lose their records. They, they put the, the, the account on a, like I'm, you and I are both working off of a laptop here. They put the account on a laptop, they get a new computer and for some reason they forget to transfer all the data from one computer to the other and they've lost their path back to their cryptocurrency. Now you'd think, well, that's gotta be a minuscule problem. And, but it turns out that there's some high fraction of the big, especially uh, Bitcoin, the most expensive one that's out there, there's a high fraction of Bitcoin that's lost due to those kind of happenings. I think it's north of 10%. Yeah, that. there's actually an episode of the Big Bang Theory where the um, the Big Bang guys, um, you know, they've they've earned, I guess early in the right days, you could earn Bitcoin by solving mathematical problems. Yeah, they call it mining. Mining, yeah. They, they, so they mine some Bitcoin and they put it on a, a um, you know, a flash drive, right. and then they couldn't find the flash drive because <laughs> you know they and then they because they read oh, the, the the value of Bitcoin's way up. Well, you know where's that flash drive? And they, they couldn't find it. Yeah, well that that's that's a key issue, isn't it? I mean, yeah. now, um, and of course the the one of the things that I saw with the with respect to currencies in general is that they're their value goes up to the extent that they're accepted worldwide. So, you know, the U.S. dollar is accepted worldwide. And that's part of what keeps it up. And most of these other currencies, cryptocurrencies, start out very local. And, and, and the value is set because it's a small network. But when an outfit like Facebook comes along, proposes, what was it, Libra? Was that their cryptocurrency? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, now now that could be very unsettling to governments. You know. Yes. You know, all of a sudden, yeah. taking all the money from the government and it's somehow funneled over to a private entity. I, I, I just can't imagine governments letting that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it's when uh, when corporations control the government. This this fascism, right? So is that right? Is that could that lead to a fascist state? I don't know. It's a interesting. Uh, Idea. I uh, yeah. I read a a couple of books that relate to this topic recently. One is called Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson. Mm. Um, it won an award for best science fiction book of the year in two thousand. It, um, it discusses uh, cryptocurrencies. Basically, it kind of talks about the the idea of them. About um, these guys found a lot of gold from World War II and the Philippines and we're setting up a digital haven and 
you know, and they never, they never did really, it, the novel doesn't end with them actually setting up a digital currency, but they talk about it in the book. So he kind of, he's seen as someone like the prophet of the advent of cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. And that book originally came out in, you know, 99, 1999. And it wasn't until nine years later that Satoshi Nakamoto published the first uh, white paper on Bitcoin. And he's a shadowy figure. He's, no one really knows his true identity. That might not actually be just one person. It might be several people too, right? It can be several people. It's been speculated that Neil Stevenson's actually Satoshi Nakamoto. Oh, that's interesting. His Because uh, his Satoshi Nakamoto's initials are SN, which is Neil Stevenson NS reversed. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's uh, some talk about that. And I guess at, that, at one point, that individual or group of individuals was worth some $50 billion at the peak of the Bitcoin craze. Um, and that's another subject that was in the book, Narrative Economics by Robert Schiller, a Nobel Prize winning economist, who talks about narrative economics and how uh, they that some narratives like Bitcoin spread like viruses, they're like epidemics. Yeah. And you can see how fast, you know, for example, COVID has spread, now spreading again. Um, and similar things like uh, narratives like Bitcoin, you know, one of the narratives in that was people want to be part of it was futuristic. People wanted right. to be part of this future wave. And that was one of the narrative threads that, that drove the uh, popularity of Bitcoin. And uh, another one uh, that that, uh, that Schiller talks about in his book is the Laffer Curve, which you've done some work on. Yes. Um, interestingly, we had studied uh, the marijuana market a little bit several years ago, and I, I got to thinking as more and more data started to pour in, as, as more states started to legalize marijuana, that if I took all of the tax and revenue data from the state and then normalized it to a certain year, so I think I normalized it to 2019, that at the limit, at a, you know, we, we like to talk about frontiers a lot in, in our field, um, what we call typically a demand frontier would appear. Well, what we wanted to see if, is if at a limit, Again, the Laffer curve for the uninitiated. Um, Laffer curve looks at it typically, when our vernacular, I think Laffer actually had it rotated, but the way we show it is we have the the um, tax rate on the horizontal axis. So it starts at zero at the, at the origin, moves rightward. And in this case, it actually goes past 100%. Laffer himself had said that he thought that, you know, if you, you applied it to income tax, you started at zero, you'd have zero revenue. You go all the way to 100, you have zero revenue, but somewhere in between, there's a peak uh, described by a second order polynomial that you could work out the, the maximum, you know, just doing a little differentiation. But <clears throat> I got to thinking, well, what, what would happen in, in marijuana? What is that going to form a laughter curve? So I started to pick up data from Washington and Colorado back in 2014 when recreational marijuana became legal in those two states. And I, I took their revenue and then I divided it into the revenue per capita per marijuana user, per capita marijuana user in the state, because there's data on that too. And then I started adding in the other states that started to have um, receipts, including California, Massachusetts. And then last year, most notably Nevada. And it worked out that at the, at the limit, Nevada was getting, was getting something on the order of $800 per marijuana user per year. And Washington State in 2014 was down around $50. Now, 
what was interesting on this curve is that the, the high point with, with Nevada was that they only had a tax rate of about 15 and a half percent. Whereas if you went all the way down to the other end of the curve, Washington State in 2014 had an effective rate of 108%. And so along this frontier, which was statistically significant, along this frontier, that's basically telling you if you go horizontally, again, that's the tax rate, you go vertically, that's the amount of per capita money you get per user. That really becomes the, the efficient frontier for the government in terms of taxation. What's the most money, the way, other way to, to cynically do that, What's the most money I can wring from the, the, the uh, cannabis users, given my tax rate per capita? And if you're, if you're not on that curve and you're in the market, but you're not on the curve, what you've got then is you've got an inefficiency. You haven't made your markets efficient enough so that you can get to that limit. So California, here in California, we had in 2019, we have 13 times the population of Nevada. But at the end of 2019, Nevada made twice as much revenue as California with one thirteenth the population. And so Nevada is, is Nevada is actually defining that thing, along with Washington State in 2014. That's the worst you could do. And along this curve, there's some other points, um, Colorado and another version of Washington in a different year. So California is both inefficient with respect to how much they're extracting at the tax rate, and they're also taxed too high. So if they were to, to, to drop their tax rate, the revenue would go up. Now, what would happen to Nevada's revenue at the same time? Well, it's probably the case that, I mean, if you take the tax rate of, of uh, Nevada at, at, I think, 15%, and you take the amount that they've been taxed, 800 bucks, it's basically saying that the average marijuana user was spending $4,800 on marijuana. Or, or some people came into the state and bought it and they took it out, right? Yep, yep. And some of those people might have been from their neighbors, which is, of course, us, which is out here, so us in California. So the, the observation of this is that if you're a state that's in a financial fix, and which states aren't right now with COVID, and you want to you want to try to extract more money from your tax base, the last thing you want to do is inefficiently tax people. So if you tax too high and there's an alternative to go to some other place, you can lose that revenue. So here in this state, uh, what happens on a more longstanding basis and, and always legal basis is that the state gas taxes here are higher than Arizona. And so if you find yourself from, you know, in California driving to the Grand Canyon, what you want to do is you want to make sure that you don't buy gas you know, as you hit the eastern border of California, you want to get into the western, you want to get into Arizona because you're going to save money. Well, right. this gets back in the whole idea of incentives and economics. I mean, people don't want to pay for, you know, the, the, the marijuana and the gas isn't any better than it, in California than it is in Arizona or Nevada, respectively. So what you want to do is you want to, you want to, you want to observe what's going on and make some sense of it and start to tax accordingly. I don't remember there was a, there was a, this happened out uh, your way. Um, might've been 10 years ago. Remember the big gas tax scam that there was where people were transporting tankers of gas from one state to another to avoid the taxes on it. You remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it's, 
it seems ludicrous that with all this knowledge that we have that we can't make these things uniform across say something like the whole United States, that would be really swell, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah definitely. Yep. Yep. So, yep. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Author Laffer actually lives, uh, I live near Nashville, Tennessee and author Lash Laffer lives in Tennessee. Uh, Tennessee has no state income tax, which I think is one reason why he moved here. He's big anti-tax guys, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. He, at one point when he, when he first moved to Tennessee, it was reported that he said that Nashville was a great state to live in, but not a great state to die in because uh, state taxes were fairly high. And then they cut the state taxes. So, so now he, he decided he's going to stay because it's a great state to die in as well, because uh, his, uh, his, his personal wealth won't be t taken away from him when it, in, you know, his, in term when he dies his, so his descendants can get more of it, I guess. So, yeah. um, so yeah, so now he says it's a great state to die in as well. But he, uh, yeah, so yeah, it was interesting. One of the things that Schiller talks about, I guess I didn't appreciate was, you know, there's there's two points on the curve that yield the same amount of revenue. One is lower tax and one is higher tax. So you can, you know, try about lowering taxes, you could potentially uh, achieve the same amount of revenue or more than, than right. at a higher tax rate. Yeah, and the one thing that people fail to appreciate when you do the lower taxes is they'll look at a stagnant condition. They won't look at, at that it might draw more people into the particular state too. Right. Just like Laffer left. I mean, he used to teach here at USC, so he left California to move to Tennessee to avoid taxes. Right. Well, so you, you, uh, I think you said you went. To, you actually saw a little bit of history from Dr. Laffer at the Smithsonian, didn't you? Yeah, so back in February, my last business trip uh, that I went on uh, so far, I've been kind of shut down with the pandemic on business travel, but I, I was in the D.C. area, and uh, I was in uh, Arlington, Virginia for uh, for a conference. I was actually presenting a, uh, a summary of my book, an earlier version of my book that was focused on aerospace and defense at the Military Operations Research Society uh, gathering they had at the end of February, and I got on the Metro, took the Metro across to the Smithsonian. Um, a lot of people that were there, it's been, been, been a while since I've been in a crowd that big. And in the, the uh, American history, they have a, a section on business and they, they have like a, the Bloomberg terminal, you know, mm. Michael Bloomberg. And yeah. they, uh, and then they have a, a small section about uh, other economics related items. One, um, one is Milton Friedman's briefcase. Wow. One of the briefcases he used to carry this big black briefcase. No free lunch. And in one there. of those is there, huh? No free lunch in there, right? No free lunch in there. No free lunch. That's one of the yeah one of the things in my book I cited is Milton Friedman's okay. no free lunch. And um, the, another a, a pen from or uh, something about Ross Perot about about the um, talking about uh, debt. You know, talking about the importance of debt and then the issues with debt. You know, Ross Ross Perot ran for president in the '90s a couple of times. Actually, did very well for a third-party candidate. I think in '92 he got was it about 18 percent of the vote, something like that. Yeah, right. And um, he uh, he he did very well as um, and in uh, as a third-party candidate. And uh, but anyway, he, he one of the things that he was talking about was the amount of debt that we you know that we had, and and debt was an issue. And one of his criticism critiques of uh, President George H. W. Bush mm -hmm. was. Um, you know, an increase in the deficit. Reagan also increased the deficit significantly. And um, so he had, you know, some memorabilia about, about his uh, focus on um, debt. And then the, there's also the Laffer curve, which supposedly was um, 
there was a, uh, Laffer was at a restaurant with, uh, I think Don Rumsfeld and, um, uh, there was a, a Wall Street Journal columnist that was there, um, Don Rumsfeld, and and some other folks who worked for the the Ford administration. He, mm -hmm. he he sketched out sketched out the graph on a napkin, at the um, you know at, at the at the at the luncheon, uh, when they're having lunch at the, I think the Four Seasons restaurant in D.C. Mm -hmm. And he kind of uh, kind of sketched it out, and then uh, that was uh, then later given to Smithsonian and it's, and it's uh, immortalized there. Uh, the only thing with, and that makes it a very popular narrative and it probably helped with its popularity, but it's, it's actually believed that um, that little piece of memorabilia was actually uh, forged, if you will, <laughs> by uh, the Washington journal of a guy that was there. Oh. Um, Jude Winiski, who since passed away, he is credited with actually having created the napkin after the fact and then inventing the story about the creation of Africa Earth. Makes for a great story. That is funny. Yeah. It probably didn't actually happen. They probably did talked about it, but they didn't actually have the piece of, uh, you know, they didn't actually draw on the napkin. Yeah. For those of you that aren't in aerospace or, you know, don't know too much about it, there's historically a, a whole bunch of things that have been sketched out on the proverbial back of an envelope or the back of the napkin. That it would just be the epitome of something like that. I mean, if Kelly Johnson did the same thing with uh, some of his fighters. You know, he worked out some fighters in the, in the 40s, just basically threw up cartoons on an envelope and handed it to the Army, then Army Air Force, and they came up with the P 38. That's, uh, that's how they came about with that. Is Kelly just whipped it out in a few minutes and came up with sketches and found a way to go and went, drove down the path, and then we had a plane. So. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it is. It's very amazing. So I'd be interesting. I'd like to be able to run the Laffer curve worldwide, but of course you need to have all the data from all the taxing states that are out there. But there's probably a way to, to optimize this. I mean, remember the Beatles wrote Taxman? You remember that song? Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, 19 for me. Yeah, yeah. The 5% appear too small. Be thankful I don't take it all. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Beatles moved themselves to Monte Carlo because of that. Uh, have you been to Monte Carlo before? Justin? I have not. Monte Carlo's a little bit like Disneyland, except they clean Disneyland twice a day, and they clean Monte Carlo four or five times a day. They, uh, oh, wow. It's, a, it's less than the size of the L.A. airport, very small country, but it's a tax haven. And they make all their money on a value-added tax, and they don't have an income tax. But... So you got lots of wealthy people paying the same flat tax for things that they buy. The next thing you know, you've got a whole bunch of money. Now, of course, they don't have a standing army or an air force or maybe to pay for it either, like we do. But right. it just it, it just illustrates the point that if you drop taxes low enough, you're going to draw people to you, wealthy people. And that that's something that you want to be able to do. And, and I think we've kind of lost sight of that. With our taxation structure, we've got people moving in and out of jurisdictions because of taxes. Right. We need not do that if we were smart about it. So, so you, you also wanted to talk today, Christian, I know you've been studying, as I have, COVID, and you had something to say about COVID in Florida. Well, one of the interesting things about, uh, I know that uh, there's a narrative that uh, well, the, the cases are increasing, but that's because testing is increasing, but Cases are increasing faster than tests are increasing, and 
you can also see that an increase in the number of hospitalizations and the increase in what you're not seeing nationally yet is an increase in the number of deaths, but deaths are a lagging indicator. So it could, right, right, right. it could come along. It, it, it could also, and the good thing about it is that, that I think, uh, you know, we understand, uh, especially the medical profession understands a lot more about the virus than they did originally. And they have started, uh, you know, come up with, with some things that help with some of the, the, um, more difficult cases and more severe cases, including the, the uh, use of steroids, which helps, but, but, you know, deaths are lagging. Uh, so, so we could see an increase in deaths. Uh, Florida has really uh, been on fire lately and that it's a little disturbing because people are still going on a vacation there. So they're, they may be going there, contracting the disease, not realizing that they have it for a few days, go home and then spread it, you know, other places. Oh, yeah. Um, there was a record over 10,000 cases today. The, at the height of the epidemic in New York, there was only 11,600 cases in one day. So we're getting close to that area. And Florida is accelerating. That was kind of when things were peaking in New York. On the other hand, we're not seeing the number of deaths, which is a good thing. We're not seeing the number of deaths in Florida that we've seen in New York. You know, in New York, people were dying at the rate of 1,000 people a day at one point. Wow. Yeah. So we're not seeing that many deaths in Florida. Hopefully that will stay that way, but it's a, it's definitely a concern. Here in California, I just studied the, the data on this is that we hit about 3000 cases a day in April and it was pretty, pretty much flat and then had gradual decrease to the middle of June. And that's about the time we opened up the, the state. Yep. And we went from 3000 to, as of yesterday, over 5,000. Wow. So we've gone up you know, over two thirds by, by in the last two weeks. So that's very troubling. Um, yep. so We're seeing a big increase here in Tennessee too. Yep. So, I mean, we, we've just been banned. We, the United States, Americans have been banned from Europe. I don't know if you saw that. Yep. And if you, Christian, decided you in Tennessee want to take a trip to New York, right now they, they, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut have a 14-day quarantine on people that comes in from high high case states. So if you were to come in from um, Florida, they'd want to yep. quarantine Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, Florida had to be in quarantine for 14 days, which would basically you, you, you would go, you get there, I guess you would be in a hotel for a little while and then you'd come home. So you, <laughs> not much, not much point in going there. That was, right. that was one of the bad things about this. Uh, we, we had, my family had planned to go on a cruise out of New York Mm. Uh, so full, a fall foliage cruise that would go up the East Coast, go out of New York and go up the East Coast and into Canada to see the fall foliage. But of course, that's been canceled. So it's unfortunate. Oh, that would have been a nice trip. Wow. Yep. How far north would you have gone? Uh, Nova Scotia. I think it's Nova Scotia. Would, oh, that's yeah. where it would, it would go. It would go. Up to, it would go. Uh, it would stop in Massachusetts uh, near Boston, the Boston area, and then go up to Maine and then go up to Nova Scotia, and then come back down. Interesting. Nova Scotia is a pretty place. Highest tides in the world, Bay of Fundy. It's the highest what? Highest uh, tides, ocean tides. Oh, highest ocean tides. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's they go up yeah. and down 40 feet in a day. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And they spend a lot of money on, um, and so it's a probably a good source of hydroelectric uh, power. Uh, I think when the I think uh, this one of the projects in that area. I think I talk about my book. Uh, it's a a, a project that experienced a lot of uh, cost of schedule growth. 
Yeah, they're trying to catch the tidal forces in and out of these channels, right? Where they get all through air and they try to create a turbine of some sort that, that flips with the tides. Yep. It's very, yeah, it's very expensive. Yeah, it's, uh, these kinds of projects are very com complex. Yeah, that's a, it's amazing what, how, how deep, how much this risk phenomena can extend into all these different facets. So one of the things I think is kind of fascinating, you kind of touched on, in fact, the, the cover of your book shows a bridge going, you know, you know approaching the, the, the perspective of the viewer there. It'd be interesting to see how we could place risk place risk on the, the infrastructure that we have, the, the risk of keeping it versus the risk of letting it maybe crumble into, into nothingness. So for example, you know, we had talked a few weeks ago about Fukushima and they built Fukushima with the idea that it gets back to your idea of probability versus consequence. So the probability of, a, of something breaching the seawall was considered very minuscule, but the consequence of something happening like that was of course, catastrophic. And of course, they built a seawall to maybe withstand a, what they envisioned to be a, a thousand year wave. And for lack of a better term, they got a 2000 year wave in there. And the rest is history. So as we see, you know, like the I-35 bridge collapsing in Minneapolis, um, and, and we have this really low grade on infrastructure right now in the United States, how would you take your approach to capitalizing, putting a capital value on the infrastructure we have with a view to swapping it out for something new, you know, basically the reinvigorated infrastructure? Yeah, that would be probably a good, a good case of cost benefit analysis, you know, and having to take the risks into account as well and looking at, um, you know, some of those, those extremes that occur, um, you know, what are some of those extremes and what is the likelihood of occurrence like, for example, in the, um, when was that earthquake in San Francisco that uh, caused the, caused that, uh, there's that double decker bridge oh, yeah. in San Francisco. Prima Loma, I think that was the quake. It was, and it kind of, it kind of collapsed on top of it. Yeah. in the 89 world series. Yeah. Yeah. 89. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what are, what are those risks? How likely are there to occur? Um, earthquakes are hard to predict. Natural disasters are hard to predict, but they have, uh, you know, they're known as fat tail phenomenon. So that's something that needs to be taken into account. Um, you know, the, the normal distribution when it comes to things like that is not so normal. Um, I saw something the other day that, uh, Nassim Taleb, who's a big proponent of fat tail distributions, mm -hmm. you think the normal distribution would apply in you know, most situations. It does apply to things that are governed by the laws of physics to a large extent, like mm -hmm. heights, weights, uh, lifespans of humans, uh, you know, but if you start looking at the list of things that it doesn't apply to, it, it quickly becomes a much larger list. Uh, frequencies of words, uh, the sizes of cities, the sizes of firms, mm -hmm. stock market fluctuations, all those things are much fatter tail. The, the cost and schedule of uh, any kind of project you, you think about of any complexity. Yeah. They're well, all fatter tail than a normal. Getting back to infrastructure, suppose that you, instead of looking at a, a non-physical phenomenon, you look at a physical phenomenon, say, for example, corrosion on a bridge. That ought to be able to be measured in a way in which 
would be you get useful predictions out of it. So, for example, you take the Minneapolis I-35 bridge going down. Right. It seems to me that it ought to have been able, somebody ought to have been able to predict that you had metal fatigue. But my understanding was that they weren't even doing inspections on these bridges. And that's part of what we're doing. Yeah, that's part of the problem. They have to start to, assess, have to start doing some amount of um, upkeep and maintenance and, and at least measuring what's going on. So back, back, getting back to you, your cost benefit and also the risk. I mean, so you could assign, say this is pre I-35 bridge going down and, and all of a sudden somebody sees the metal fatigue on it because they have been studying it. And you say, well, the probability of this bridge going down is, let's just pick a number, one in 10 in the next 10 years. Right. And you say, okay, well, that's, you've been given a likelihood. What's the consequence of that happening? And so you'd say, well, there's going to be a certain number of people who are going to be on a bridge at a certain point in time. And then right. once the bridge collapses, there's going to be, I mean, the attendant people that are, and hurt or, or worse, but then you have to clear it up and then you got to build a new bridge. And in the meantime, you've lost all this productivity that you were gaining because you had the bridge in the first place. Now people have to take the long way to get it around for their, their, uh, right. Yeah, that's another consequence. Yeah. Yeah. So how would you, I have an idea how I would model that. What would you do for your models? What would you do? You would need to, to look at probabilistically and look at the, you know, probability distributions of, that would measure the likelihood and the consequence of these things occurring and do some sort of, probably some sort of simulation to look at, um, you know, what would happen and, and, and what the outcomes are. So you give yourself a probability of the bridge collapsing and said, suppose the collapse, now you're into consequences. And so there would be, say, pick a number, 100,000 cars going over the bridge every day. Right. And those people are going to work and other things. And all of a sudden now, they're rerouted and they have to go another, I don't know, pick a number, hour to get back to work. And so they've, they've lost all those car hour days. Right. You have to build a new bridge in a zone that's been compromised. It means you have to pull out the other the debris that's in your way that you haven't deconstructed properly. So that's gonna cost you more money. Yep. And you've got to put up the, the new bridge and you have to do all the stuff that's intended for that. So. That could be quite a process then in that case. Yep. Yeah, it can be very, very complex. Interesting. Interesting. But that's the kind of analysis that needs to be done because it's it's a complex analysis. It's going to require some investment, but the return is is so much uh, greater than the amount of investment you have to make on something like that. Right. So let's talk about the likelihood and consequences of the NFL being canceled this year. I've uh, yeah, you said uh, you wrote me a little note the other day. Said Dr. Fauci might call off the uh, the NFL season this year, and I've noticed that a bunch of people in these what do they call them bubbles or zones where they're supposed to be Corona free that they're they're starting to get, including your beloved University of Alabama, they're starting to get many more infections than they thought they would get. Right? I mean, what's the status on that? Yes, uh, I don't know the status of the, the football team right now, but I know at least five football players at the University of Alabama were diagnosed with COVID. So I don't think there's, you know, there's two, there's two aspects to that. One is fans in the stands. So that's probably, that's probably pretty much out. You know, Major League Baseball is trying to have a season with no fans in the stands. If you want to have a likeness of yourself at a game for $99, you can pay to have a, them make a cardboard cutout of a photograph of you and put it in the stands. But uh, so that's that's one aspect. So that, so there's no fans in the stands, 
that eliminates one source of risk. But the other source of risk is you have people, all these players around each other, training, exercising, you know, uh, showering, cleaning up. And apparently, you know, uh, when you exercise, you, you know, the, the way, main way I guess COVID is, is transmitted is through respiratory droplets. So when you're exercising, you're breathing more heavily, you're, you're, uh, you know, scrooting more respiratory droplets. So it's more likely to spread it. So, you know, uh, people on these sports teams are now uh, testing positive as well. Mm-hmm. So I just don't see how they're, they're going to be able to maintain a season. You major league baseball wants to have a 60 game season. I just don't think that's going to see how it's going to happen. I mean, they, they could try it, but they're probably going to be shut down if it, if it happens. Interestingly, I watched a little bit of the English Premier League. Uh, that's soccer for us in the United States. And they restarted. And they they don't have fans in the stands. But back to your point, they kind of have pictures of people in the stands at a certain place. But the one thing that they decided to do to make it more realistic is they, they, they start pumped in, they're starting to pump in sounds into the stadium as if the crowd were there. Ah. And so I, what's fascinating to me is you've got two teams. And, of course, you've got – teams from both sides so somebody will take a shot and it'll go awry so if it's a home team there kind of be a gasp from the crowd but if it's you know if it's two teams playing in the same city like what they call um derbies in, in england you know they'll have a groan from one side and cheers from the other and they've got some guy that or some series of people on a big soundboard mixing up all these the sounds of the crowd at the same time so it's um it's life imitating life effectively right there we're trying to we we we, yeah. we had a certain reaction to things before we we recorded it we have some new phenomenon to which we ought to react we're not there so we're going to simulate the reaction by inserting this this newfound yeah. technology here it's pretty fascinating yeah. yeah it's interesting you know they tried to do uh some sort of tennis uh tournament novak djokovic had some sort of a tennis sort of informal tennis network, some sort of tennis tournament that Djokovic had, had uh, put together, you know, he's mm-hmm. one of the top tennis players and, and he, he and his wife have tested positive for COVID. Oh, geez, wow. So that's the, and, the, and some other people have too. So they had to shut that down. So they may not be in tennis a while where I, I used to live Huntsville. They have a pretty big group of uh, pretty active network of folks that play uh, league tennis, you know, what they call sometimes called club tennis. Um, mm-hmm. And um, they've had a little mini outbreak there as well. Even though it's outdoors, uh, people are trying to sort of told to stay away from each other. But you might have a hundred people out there, right. and you know there's there's like 25 courts or more. Um, and so any time you might have a hundred people out there or more. So it's just inevitable that someone's going to come in contact with it. The other troubling uh, trend, in addition to sports, is that um, a lot of young people in the state of Alabama. This recent recent news that they're having these parties where they're, they're trying to see who can contact COVID first. And they're actually putting money into a pot. And the person who contracts COVID first wins the pot of money. Oh, it's pretty, pretty dumb. Yeah. That's an unintended consequence out here in, in um, California. You know, they, they, it's, we have, we have lots of prisons and, and the prisons are overcrowded. And so, what happened was the, the governor said, well, I'm going to release prisoners that are low risk to get the population down, especially if, then they made a little paragraph here, especially if they have COVID, right? 
So what started to happen? Well, there's a, there's a video out here where somebody had a COVID infest, infected mask from somebody that got it. And they're all, pat, these, these inmates are passing the mask around, all sniffing down the mask. Oh, so they can get out of prison. They can get out of prison, yeah. Oh, wow. So it's, it's, it's hard to figure out how to incentivize people in, in such strange times. Strange times, it's really kind of remarkably interesting to me. That, 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 is, that, is, def- that is definitely different. You know, yeah, we haven't had that here in Tennessee. That, that was one area where when they had a prison outbreak, that's, that's not good to have a prison outbreak, but it's not as troubling to me because I'm not you know, visiting a prison or going to right. prison, hopefully not going to prison anytime <laughs> soon. Right. So, Doug, you have a, a book that, that you've been working on for a while and working getting published. Um, so, you know, I think that has something to do with the movement in space and things like that. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, the, when we're talking here about COVID, what, what we've got is we've got people that have a certain latitude, longitude, and altitude relative to other people. And what's, what's fascinating about COVID is COVID is a disease that's passed on through particles and those particles also have points in space and, and your, your likelihood of getting the disease is a function of your proximity. In other words, there's a, a position for you and there's a position for the virus. And what you want to do is you want to separate yourself from the, the virus. So my book looks at position in, it, it starts out in very simply with looking at three-dimensional maps. So it starts out with Hansel and Gretel. When Hansel drops a rock, to form the trail that he's going to have to take him into the woods when his parents are going to leave him there to die. Why he comes back, I don't know. But when he's leaving these rocks, he's basically saying, I was here. Here's my latitude, here's my longitude, here's my altitude. And he's leaving himself, he's creating himself a trail that he can follow. And so a key concept in our view of the market is that every time you make a purchase, you are adding to the collective description of we were here. You go out and buy an electric car, you, bu- you buy the first Mitsubishi, Mitsubishi i in, in 2009, you're forming a point there that says, I, I, here's, I bought one vehicle, I bought the first vehicle, it's worth 30,000 bucks. This forms the first purchase in the market. And as you start to buy more of them, say at the same price for the first year, you're starting to move that point laterally to a point that, that that'll finally read the quantity and price for a certain product in a year. And then as other products start to enter the market, shapes form. And, the, and what, what math is, I think if we, you and I could agree on anything, was that math is pattern recognition. I mean, that's how, that's how the calculus was studied. There was a pattern recognition of that. And what, what this analysis is of ours, and, and so my book is entitled Unlocking Hidden Dimensions. The hidden dimensions are the ones that you can't see that actually describe what something's worth. And then we compare that to the demand for a product, what we call value. So we have value space compared to demand. And that's, that's what Unlocking Hidden Dimensions, my book, is addressing. So looking to try to get a publisher sometime soon. Um, I still I need to rewrite another chapter because we've done more work. Well, we actually discovered that the four-dimensional system worked for COVID analysis. Yeah. Oh yeah, that'd be, that'd be a good, yeah, that'd be a good chapter. And since I started writing the book, we, we came up with the idea that the frontier describes the laughter curve for marijuana. So there's, yeah. there's other elements that keep 
that the world just keeps dropping into our, our lap here, as it were, that we want to keep trying to, but at a certain point, you know, the, as they say in aerospace, it's time to kill the engineers and build a product. So I need to stop engineering it and start to yeah, yeah. product here. So, so yeah, I'd like to maybe talk about that more next time. So Kristen, I, I, we've had a great, great run here. You want to call this a day then? Or you want to say the I think so. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's good. Yeah. Okay. It's a good discussion. Smart Remarks, Howard States. is brought to you by Me, Inc., the discoverers of and world leader in multidimensional economics. Please visit our website at www.meevaluators.com. You can address your questions to the show at info at meevaluators.com. You can follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash M-E-E-L-L-C. You'll follow us on Instagram at www.instagram.com slash meevaluators. On Twitter at at me4d. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at at Douglas underscore Howard. <laughs>